If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus chapter number 23. The book of Leviticus chapter number 23. You know, I was given some good advice years ago uh, about what to preach on on certain times. I know that we're supposed to be led of the Lord, and I do that. I try to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes, I had one uh, pastor say, Hey, listen, when you get close to a holiday, go ahead and preach on that subject. That's what people are expecting, you know. (laughs) Oftentimes, it's good to be greeted with what you expect. On Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, uh, you know, uh, Independence Day, you'll find that usually Independence Day, I'll come in waving flags and have something to say to America. Amen. (laughs) Uh, But here as we near Thanksgiving, I thought it would be fitting for us to take a closer look at Thanksgiving and and see some shadows of what we celebrate and have celebrated, many of you, many years, or not so many, I'm not trying to put... Anyway, uh, 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 what we celebrate year after year has a shadow of an appearance in the Scriptures. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I I want you to think on the heart of our Thanksgiving celebration. We'll pick up our reading in Leviticus chapter 23 and look at verse 33. We'll read down through verse number 44. And if you have any headings on your Bible, you might see at verse 33 the heading that says the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'll get into why here in a moment, but In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33, And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly and you shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For the, present, for the, for the presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Beside the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all of your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. So he's saying that this is going to be special. This is a special time. You'll bring your normal vow offerings, and your freewill offerings, and all of these other things, and you'll observe your regular Sabbaths, but in that is a special time of sacrifice and Sabbath. Verse 39, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord's seven days. And on the first day uh, shall be a solemn rest. And on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice because the Lord your God rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is, the, it is a statute forever. Throughout your generations you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast. Now... More than likely, all of us will gather together with our family on Thursday and enjoy what we call a Thanksgiving day or a Thanksgiving celebration. Now, although this day has has only been existed nationally as a national holiday less than 80 years, it's been an, 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 an observed holiday more or less throughout our nation's history since its founding in 1776. But actually, the tradition itself goes back 
to the early 1600s when a mixed group of religious refugees and aspiring landowners arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts on the Mayflower. Of 102 passengers that set sail from England, by the time we come to 1620, the winter of 1620 and 1621, only half of those were still alive. So of the 102, there were 50-odd people left uh, that had not died. And that winter was particularly harsh. Uh, during that winter, uh, this is a side, but during that winter, uh, they, they stayed the night on the boat, and then during the day they would come and try to build housing uh, for the people to live. And they did that during the winter. And they had no fresh vegetables. Scurvy was a problem. There was a lot of sickness on board. And many people died in that cruel winter of 1620 to 1621. But by that spring, uh, they had moved over into the housing on land. And with the, the help of local natives, these settlers began to eke out an existence and, and, and begin to plant fields that they desperately needed crops for the coming year. And that fall, so we're talking about 1621, at that fall, somewhere around late September and early November, nobody really knows the date, it was never well established in any kind of uh, in any kind of journal or anything. They don't really know the date, but somewhere after the harvest, at the end of September, beginning of November, they called, and the leadership there called for a day of feasting, a day of thanksgiving. It was a celebration. And, and of course, you know the story. All of us have been entrenched in that story. The, uh, the, uh, the pilgrims invited local natives who had helped them in the previous year to come and to celebrate this, uh, this Thanksgiving feast. And they spread the table. And for three days, they had a, a feast together in, in celebration of what the Lord had done. They, had, they used, uh, uh, they used the, the harvest from the fields that they had planted with the native self. They also went... Uh, hunting for game, for venison, and also the proverbial turkey. That's where it all kind of comes from, is, it, is from that, this harvest feast. Now, although it was not explicitly stated, many scholars believe uh, that the pilgrims based their Thanksgiving feast upon one of the many Hebrew feast days of the Old Testament. You see, Puritans didn't do things outside of the Bible, anything like that. So they would take whatever they did from the Old Testament Scriptures or the New Testament and they would apply them uh, to their lives. And so this particular day, which is called a, uh, a Feast of Thanksgiving that we know, more than likely comes from the Hebrew feast in the Old Testament called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths as it's known in the text that I read here. And it bears a striking resemblance to what we actually celebrate today in Thanksgiving. Both of these feasts were feasts coming late in the year when crops were gathered. Did you catch that in our text when it talks about how that when the crops and the, and, the, and the harvest had done, that that was the time of this celebration? And they were both celebrated by people who had traveled a great distance. The Puritans of that day thought of themselves somewhat like the people of Israel in the fact that they had left a, a homeland for, uh, from a place of persecution to a place of freedom, identifying closely with the Hebrew people who left the bondage of Egypt for a promised land uh, to worship their God. And then also we see that the Feast of Booth lays, uh, lays also in the purpose of giving thanks to God for His blessings and how He has uh, produced and among them and how that they have had a prosperous and, and, and a good harvest. Now, we could say that the Feast of Booths lies at the heart of what we celebrate as a Thanksgiving holiday. But I think also that what, we, what, the, that what the Feast reflects and teaches us should lay at the heart 
of why we gather together and what we should be thinking when we come together on Thursday, when we sit with our various family members. I want to give you a mindset this morning from this Feast of Tabernacles, and I want to talk to you about basically what kind of heart should we bring? What should be at the heart of our Thanksgiving celebration? And I think we can do this by meditating on three aspects of this feast. So I want to bring three aspects. The first of these is the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles, first of all, is a time for remembering the past. Remembering the past. The Christian life is very much a separation from the past. Uh, the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it represents a line of demarcation separating us from before Christ and after Christ. You know, like Jesus, Jesus actually divides time for us today. We have the B.C. before Christ or and then we have A.D., Anno Domini, or basically uh, in the year of our Lord, after Christ. So we have an A.D. and a B.C. Well, every person uh, that has truly been born of God has a B.C. and an A.D. Has a B.C. before they met Christ, has an A.D. after they met Christ. You say, well, Brother Ronnie, uh, Brother Ronnie, I, to be honest with you, I've always been a Christian. And we got a time out. We got a problem because there ain't nobody always been a Christian, Jesus said, you must be born again. I don't care how much water you spray on a little baby. That is not regeneration. That is not the new birth. One must come to a point of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. So there is a past and there is a present in the life of a believer. We find this in Philippians chapter 3. Paul speaks about forgetting those things in the past and how he presses toward the mark of the prize of the high calling. 2 Corinthians 5.17 lays this out. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we as believers, we don't need to live in our past. I know a lot of, a lot of people, of uh, uh, Christians that have been saved, but they constantly rem remorse and regret their past sin. They live in that past. They won't let that past go. Hey, if God's forgiven you, there's no reason that you should hold your sin against yourself. If a God has forgiven your sin, then you need to let that past go. But there is something to be said about remembering certain parts of the past and visiting the past so that we can recall for one purpose only what God has done. God did not want the Hebrews to forget their deliverance. My pastor years ago, he used to preach a message quite often at revival meetings on the, uh, the ministry of the past. The ministry of the past and remembering the past. There is a ministry of remembrance. And I'm talking about remembering what God has done. And God didn't want the Hebrews to forget that. Deuteronomy 5.15 You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. A while back I was reading the personal testimony of Ravi Zacharias and he's made this statement. I made my commitment to Jesus Christ and have never looked back except to remember how, God, how He rescued me and put a new song in my heart. That is exactly what the ministry of remembrance is in the life of every believer. To remember how far God has brought us. John Newton, the former slave trader who was called to be a minister, who penned those great words of the song Amazing Grace. Newton lived to be 82 years old and continued to preach and have an active ministry until beset with fading health in the last two or three years of his life. During that time, he would complain that the old libertine who preached the gospel was kind of shut up. People didn't want to hear him anymore. His speech wasn't as keen and sharp as it used to be. And he used to lament the fact that he couldn't preach in the churches. And I remember, you've probably heard this as well, but one night while some friends were visiting, 
John Newton was heard to say this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That is the ministry of remembrance that we ought to have. I, I shouldn't live in my old scenes of past sin. I shouldn't. Listen, there's a lot of people, preachers, that just relish in telling how bad and how wicked they've been. Good night. I don't want to spend my time there, but I do want to spend my time thinking about what God has done for me. This feast is very much about remembering the past goodness and the grace of God. We should be first of all remembering the pardon of God. The most distinguishing factor of this feast of booze is that upon the deliverance from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, it tells us that their first stop was a place called Succoth. Succoth. It's a word that literally means booths or, or some translations call it tabernacles. Now, it was at Succoth that they were to, they ate the unleavened cakes and that God instituted the Passover. And in that same chapter, it's recorded that the children of Israel had been in the land of Egypt 430 years. So as they left Egypt's land, they come to Succoth, the place of booths. They didn't have houses. They didn't have anything to live with. They left with what they could carry. And so they grabbed leafy branches and sticks and stuff and made for themselves little booths or tents uh, to, to spend the night in. And so they were to live. Now this celebration is the celebration of what they did. So think about this. Yes, of necessity. When they came out of Egypt, they had to live in booze. But many years down the road, when they made it into the promised land, and they had nice houses, and they had nice houses of clay and comfortable places to live, God would say, get out of that house. Get out into the field and make yourself a little tent and get inside of that and remember what God has done for you as a people where He has brought you from. You see, it, when, you, when they sat in them booths, they would remember the days of their pardon. How that the blood of the Passover lamb was put on the lintel and the doorpost. How they'd been delivered by a high hand through the Red Sea and had God had delivered them. Listen, the principle for us to observe as followers of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, is that we, are t we too were in bondage. We were lost in sin and on our way to hell. And then Christ intersected our path. And the power of God, the blood of the Lamb, was applied to our lives by faith in Jesus Christ. His blood purchased our pardon on Calvary's cross. And He placed us on a path of following Him. Far too little do we stop and think and just recall at what, where God found us and what He did when He brought us unto Himself. Some of you were like me on a bobslide to hell going 90 miles an hour as fast as we could away from God and God stood in the past and we had our Damascus Road moment where we met Jesus Christ and He radically changed our lives Listen, no matter how big your Bible is, how straight your tie, how decent your life may be, never forget that you were a lost sinner, a sinner condemned and on your way to hell when Jesus found you and shed His grace on you. Some may say, well, I was saved as a child and I didn't have a, have a great life of sin before Jesus saved me. And that's perfectly fine. That happens. People are saved when they're younger. And I hope that happens. Like my, my son Grayson saved as a young boy. I'm glad that happens because, because oftentimes that would save you a life of following sin in the most wretched and vile manner. But it's still the same grace that saved Grayson that it did for me and my wife and many of you out there listening to you. It's the same grace that changed and saved Save our soul. God saves and God saves the child of God. And we should never forget that. Notice not only the remember of the pardon of God, but remember the provision of God. When they left Egypt that day, they left with only what they could carry. Facing the harsh desert of, the, of the Saudi Arabia. Now, according to a quartermaster general in the army, 
It is reported that Moses would have had to have 15,000 tons of food every day to feed the people of Israel that left Egypt's land. To bring that much food every day, they would need two freight trains each a mile long. They would also have to have firewood to cook the food. This would take 4,000 tons of wood and a few more freight trains each a mile long just for one day. Also, they would have to have water. If they only had enough water to drink and wash a few dishes, it would take 11 million gallons of water every day. A freight train with cars, with tank cars, 1,800 miles long, just to bring them water to survive. And yet God supplied their needs every day, time and time again, with manna from the heavens and water from a rock that followed them through the wilderness, not just for a few days until they got to the promised land, but for 40 years God proved faithful uh, to give them exactly what they needed. The book of Deuteronomy is where God reinforces this theme of remembrance. Deuteronomy 8, 15-18, speaking of God, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with, his fire, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who led you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that He might humble you and test you and do you good in the end. Beware lest you see Say in your heart, I, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that, ye, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And when they got to the promised land, God proved their need, provided for their needs there. In Deuteronomy 6, 10-12 And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that she swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you the great and good cities that you did not build, the houses full of gold, the goods that you did not fill, the cisterns that you did not dig, the vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. This booths, these booths were a testimony of God's faithfulness to provide, of God's goodness to see them along every step of the journey. God in this past year has provided for us time and time again. God's been faithful to you, more faithful to you than you've been faithful to Him. He's done it time and time again. One author said, oh, we're real good at complaining, but they're very poor at remembering. You see, when we gather around that table, we ought to think about how God has provided, how God has been faithful. Not only did He bring us through the muddy, uh, from the, the, the desert land, through the time of slavery and sin, but brought us into a place of His provision. Remember the pardon of God. Remember the provision of God. Remember the protection of God. This feast will also cause them to recall the past protection of God. When Pharaoh was drawing near to them and to capture them at the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. Those same waters that were congealed up on either side of them as they passed through the Red Sea were the same waters that came crashing down on the armies of the Egyptians. Exodus 14, 27-28 So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the, mo- when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the, the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that they had, uh, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. You see, when they, when they were in Succoth and they had those little booths of, made of shrubbery, 
the most meanest of conditions, the most meanest of accommodations. They had a they had a, a pillar of fire by night to warm them from the desert's cold. They had a cloud to lead them and cover them from the searing heat of the desert. You see, God protected them. God providentially protected them. I'll tell you what, it is good to stop when this Thursday, when we approach that table with all of its fixings to remember how God has protected us. How God, it's been good to us. It's good for us to stop at an altar of prayer and use it like a little booth to remind us and remember why God has provided for us time time and time again, how He has protected us, how He has fulfilled the words of 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, listen, we're approach that table. It is a time to remember some things about how God's protected, provided, and delivered us in the past. Not only a time of remembering the past, but this this scene of the Feast of Booths. And I believe our Thanksgiving celebration is a time of rejoicing in the present. You know, many people think God is the divine wet blanket on human existence. That He's this const- that God is constantly looking for ways in which He can make people miserable. That God is the perpetual killjoy. But on the contrary, God wants His people to rejoice, to be glad in Him. Just as a father delights in seeing his children laugh and play and rejoice in His presence, so our Heavenly Father delights in the sounds of praise coming from His children. You see, this feast was a feast of rejoicing. Matter of fact, in verse number 40, plainly, God says to His people, You shall take on the first day of the fruit of the splendid trees, the branches of the palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall. You don't get a choice. You might have a bad week. You might be down in the mully grubs. But when it comes to this celebration, you ain't got a choice. You're too Rejoice in the Lord to praise Him waving palm branches of thanksgiving under His gaze. Many years later, during the time of exile, of course you know the story of how God's people were brought into that promised land and lived there for many years until they began to turn away from God. And they would, they would ignore the Sabbaths of God. They ignored the law of God. Until finally God sent the enemies, the Assyrians, the Babylonians to remove them from that land and take them to Babylon to live as subjects and slaves in a, in a foreign land. After a 70 year period, according to the punishment of God, they would be plucked up and brought back to the land. That brings us to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in the day of Nehemiah, it says that so the people went out and brought them and made the... uh, Nehemiah rediscovered the law of God and had had, uh, Ezra and the priests read the law before the people. They had forgotten God's law. They had forgotten everything that God had done. And Ezra took the book and began to read to the people and they rejoiced in what God had done. And he got to the part where they said they were to make booths and they looked at each other and said, hey... That's right now. This is the time. And so they went out and they brought them and made booze for themselves on, uh, on His roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the presence of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in booze for, uh, for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. (laughs) They had been restored. They remembered once again what they were doing and how they were to be celebrating and rejoicing in God. Notice the source of their rejoicing. In verse number 40, we're told, we're commanded by God. In Leviticus 23 verse 40, they're commanded to rejoice. Why? Why were they they to rejoice? 
It also gives another description of these feast days in Deuteronomy 16, 15. Listen to what it says. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will all together joyful. But what is the source of their joy? I find it interesting that the source of their joy comes in the timing of this feast. Several years ago, I went through a series in which I went through every one of the feasts of Israel and when it happened on the calendar, just prior to this feast in the seventh month that they were to celebrate the Feast of Booths, just before that was another feast. It was the Feast of the Day of Atonement. These two feasts are like night and day. Look at back in our text in Ezekiel, I mean uh, Leviticus 23 and verse number 27. 23 and verse number 27. This is the day of atonement. Now on the tenth day of this, of this seventh month is the day of atonement. You shall be for your time a holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work that day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before your God. Here we see that they're night and day. The day of atonement was a day of great sorrow. Uh, it's a time of the remembrance of sin committed over the past year. But the Feast of Tabernacles was the complete opposite. It was a week of joy and celebration. What makes the difference? The difference is the forgiveness of sin. They were to sorrow in the Day of Atonement over their sin. And then that, 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 uh, uh, that goat, that scapegoat would be chosen. And that atoning sacrifice would be made. And that priest would go in and take the blood offering and sprinkle it on the, the, on the, uh, uh, the, the, the seat, the atoning seat, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And when he came out, he would announce to the people that the sins have been forgiven for another year. That God has cleansed them and forgiven them their sins. You see, uh, the difference is the forgiveness of sin. That leads them right into the time of the booze. And it's a celebration, a time of gladness. One preacher I heard say, joy always follows cleansing. When David was in the midst of repentance for his wicked sin of adultery and murder, uh, a murder of Uriah, he said, Psalm 51, 10 through 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, sin always robs us of joy. Sin always causes and brings sorrow. But when sin is forgiven, joy can be returned. I'll never forget years ago, our choir at Temple Baptist Church where I was a young preacher at, a young preacher boy, our choir would sing a song are called I'm Still Amazed. And I love the way the verses go. I'll read them to you. I'll spare you my singing. I'm always told not to sing while I preach it. It doesn't sound good. But listen very closely. Listen to what it said. I've never got over that I am not under the bondage of sin anymore. I'm still amazed that Jesus would pay a debt I could not afford. I never got past that I'm free at last from the sin that made me a slave. And I still feel as much as when He first touched me. Oh yes, I'm still amazed. There should be a joy in the fact that sins have been forgiven. Not for a year in this economy, in this time period, when, when they would celebrate, it would be the forgiveness of sin for one year. But you and I on this side of Calvary can gladly rejoice at any time of the year and thank God my sins have been forgiven past, present, and future in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of all sacrifices. The source of rejoicing and then the sacrifice of rejoicing. Numbers 29 
outlines for us the sacrifices that were to be given during this eight-day period. So when we, we, we see in Leviticus this, the establishment of this, of this holy day, this celebration, the tabernacle booths, but in Numbers, God gives the direction as to how many sacrifices are to be made. Listen very closely. Look at what it says. Or I'll read it to you. In total, during this celebration, there were to be 199 individual animals sacrificed. There were to be 70 bullocks, 14 rams, 98 lambs, 7 goats. And then on the 8th day, there was to be 1 bullock, 1 ram, 1 goat, and 7 lambs. Man, that's a lot. When you think about, you know, those priests had to take each animal, drain out all of its blood, they had to set it out, dissect it, lay its parts out. They had to burn portions of it. They had to throw out portions of it. I mean, and you're talking about 199 times they did that during this time period. That's a lot of sacrifice. You know what that says to us? When we find our source of true joy in the Lord, no sacrifice is an obstacle. Nothing He demands it's off limits. When He has redeemed us with His own blood, purchased us, nothing is outside the boundaries of His claim. When we find our satisfaction in the free grace of God, the cost is no object. But don't you think that it's odd that there's a hundred and ninety-nine? Why not one more just make it an even two hundred? You think about that? Why 199? I, have, I just have two. This is speculation. Ronnie Brown theology. Take it or leave it. You don't have, we're not going to fight in the parking lot over this, alright? One sacrifice stood between them and 200. Listen. One sacrifice stood between them and 200. What do you think that one sacrifice would signify? It's the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will be the fulfillment, the sacrifice of all sacrifices. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. C.W. Slimming, who wrote a wonderful book on the, on the, the uh, feasts of Israel, said this, It has been suggested that the decrease to one would foretell, in fact declare, how the many sacrifices of the law in the fullness of time would be reduced to one sacrifice that was to be made once in the end of the age. The anticipated peace would only come through the peace of the cross. That one sacrifice not only tells us about Jesus Christ, but it also tells us something about ourselves. Ourselves, Romans 12.1 Paul said, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable God which is your reasonable or your, your spiritual worship. Do you find the sacrifices of separation of meditation on truth, of intercession in prayer, of dedication in service, and adoration in worship? Are they a small price to pay for walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus? Oh listen, that one sacrifice may well be our lives that we lay out before Him. One old poet wrote these beautiful lines, Oh, walk with God whilst thou art on earth. With pilgrim steps must fare, content to leave the world its mirth and claim no dwelling there. Oh, stranger, thou must seek a home beyond the fearful tide. And if, no, and if to Canaan thou wouldst come, oh, who but God can guide? What a wonderful thing to lay our lives on the altar of God's service, of giving ourselves, of, of our, our lives to His worship so that we might, like Enoch, walk with God. The feast was a time of rejoicing in the presence of God. It's not only about remembering, but that remembrance translates into rejoicing. 
Notice last of all, not only a time of remembering the past, a time of rejoicing in the present, but also a time reflecting on the promise. Like all of the Old Testament feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, it points to a future day. Things that were to come in the future. When those Hebrew children, when they were in Succoth and they were in those booths with the leafy branches and sitting underneath those booths, basically vagrant, homeless people, a journeying people with no home. And what did they look forward to? There is a land promised to our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is a land that God has promised. This feast has everything to do with a promise. A promise of God. I want us to look at the promise of God from two aspects. First of all, the promise of a Messianic Redeemer. For the children of Israel, the Feast of Booths not only reminded them of their past and the joy in their present, but also cast their eyes to the future. From the moment God had uttered the words in Genesis 3.15 that they would come of the seed of the woman, one to crush the head of the serpent, the people of God have always looked forward to the coming of the one who would break the curse of sin. The Feast of Tabernacles put them in mind of that promise. The part of the daily celebration was to take a sample of the two elements that were to use uh, to construct the booths. Now, remember we read this a moment ago, how that they would take the branches and they would rejoice. In Leviticus 23.40, we read that earlier. Part of what would come in the future around this celebration is that during this time, they would take those branches and palm leaves And they would take them and wave them and walk around the temple in Jerusalem. That became part of the celebration in the future. And they would wave those palm branches and this is what they would say. They would recite Psalm 118.25 Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. You know that word, save us, in that text? In the Hebrew is the equivalent to guess what? Hosanna. Hosanna. That very text verse in Psalm 18 and verse 26 says, the next verse from that that they would recite as they went around the temple, the very next word says, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That wouldn't be too far down the road. For in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And in Matthew 21, 8 and 9, most of the crowd spread their cokes on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before Him that followed Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This very celebration contains the words of that coming Messiah that would be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God to send a Savior. Also, although this was not instituted at the onset of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was also the lighting of temple lamps. So not only would they wave these branches, but there would be a special lighting of these large lamps in the temple. This was rooted in the prophecy of Isaiah 9 and 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has shone a light. Jesus in John 8, who may well have had in His eyesight those lamps lit around the temple, said to His disciples, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now it's one thing to say you're the light of the world. It's a very different thing to prove that you're the light of the world. But in the very next chapter, not John 8, but John 9, Jesus tells a blind man to go wash himself, go to the pool of Siloam, which means sin. And he went and washed and came back seeing. He is the one that brings light to those who sat in darkness. Also, on the last day of the Feast of Booze, 
the priests along with the procession of people singing and celebrating. They would go back down to that pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher. And the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam and he would dip out water from that. This is on the last day of the celebration of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles of Booths. And he would come back and there would be a procession as he brought that water down to the temple and made an made a offering of water before the Lord. And this is what the priest would repeat. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation then they would return to the temple and be poured out before the Lord. This carried on for centuries until the man Jesus of Nazareth stood up in John 7 and said on that last day of the feast, this is the very feast, Feast of Tabernacles, the last day of the feast, as they're bringing that water back, Jesus sees them and said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whosoever believes in me, as the Scripture saith, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is all in this Feast of Tabernacles. He is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. He is the one that will bring light to those in darkness. He is the one that brings the water of life to His people. When author writes, thus the Lord was turning the thoughts of the people away from the shadow and to the substance. If you think I'm teaching you today that we are to celebrate the the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles of the Booths, you've missed the message. Because the message isn't about what they did in the Old Testament. The message is about the One who has brought the New Covenant, the New Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. If there is a place setting at the center of your Thanksgiving table, it is none other than Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles the promise of a messianic redeemer, the promise of a millennial reign. The promise of God was not only that He would send the Messiah to redeem, but that He would reign. Deuteronomy 16, 13, And you shall keep the feast of booths seven days, and when you have gathered in the produce of your threshing floor and of your wine press. The harvest of Israel was primarily that of wheat and of grapes. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration after all those harvested, those items had been harvested. So, after they brought in all the wheat, after they brought in all the grapes, then there would be a celebration. Now think about this with me. The time in which we live now, what did Jesus say? It's a time of harvest. Jesus gave a parable of the harvest and about the wheat and the tares. About the harvest coming, Jesus lifted His eyes and upon the people of Israel and say the fields are white unto harvest. In the book of Revelation, in the day in which Jesus will come as that just judge over the earth, it said in Revelation 19.15, Tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So at the end of the age, when there has been that wheat harvest, all the ones that come to faith in Jesus Christ collected, all the wine press of His fury in the day of judgment, the Bible tells us that there'll be a time of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 and 4, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image or had not received the mark in their forehead or on their hands, they came uh, to, uh, to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Much of the Old Testament is taken up with the millennial reign of Christ. A lot of, a lot of stuff you read in Ezekiel and Isaiah and these Old Testament prophets, they look and see that millennial reign but they do not see what Christ, they do not see the state of grace. They do not see the church age. They see beyond that, straight into. That's why you see a lot of the millennial reign aspects in the Old Testament because they did not. The New Testament tells us expressly they did not know. They could not see what God would do in Jesus in the day of grace to come. But they would be looking out over that. Dr. John Wolverd suggests that the millennial reign of Christ will be God's answer to man's longing. Listen to this. 
longing for perfect government and equity and deliverance from insecurity and fears and the plagues of the modern world. There are several reasons that, uh, that I believe this millennial reign of Christ is that, but I'm not going to go into them. We're running out of time. So I, I do want to follow up with this. The millennial will, will be necessarily to witness God's, God's publicly expressed delight in Christ. God's answer to the 33 years of suffering and reproach borne by the Blessed One. Listen, Thanksgiving, when you meet Wednesday, in its heart, I believe those pilgrims had this in mind, that Feast of Tabernacles, when they gathered together that day. But in our heart, when we approach that table, we want to, with, with a few things in mind, that of remember where God brought us from. That, that also rejoicing, joy, in what He has brought to us in that future, the future promise that one day He will come and rule and reign on this earth. I know for a majority of our society this year has been hard, if not a tragic year. But we as the people of God, even in the worst of circumstances, have every reason to express gratitude and thankfulness to God. We have every reason to celebrate and praise God. We have every reason to look favorably upon a future where Christ will reign on the, uh, to the ends of the earth. You know, we sang about that a moment ago. I don't know if you caught it in our singing, but I want to... I want to read to you what we sung just a moment ago. I, I love these words. Listen to it. It said, Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where the streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in a desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In good times and in bad, God's still good. He's still good for what He's done in the past. He's still good to rejoice in in the present. And our future aspects have never been brighter since Jesus came in to our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand to a moment of invitation. We're just going to sing just a few lines of a chorus. Let's just praise the Lord. You know, nothing brings more delight to our God in heaven as He looks down upon our little worship hour than to see His people praise and rejoice in His name. Go ahead. Let's just praise the Lord.